This is part 19 of extremist literature, pure worship of Jehovah. Thank you guys for coming back. We left off last time, we finished up chapter 9, which was a really long chapter. It was like 40 paragraphs or 39 paragraphs or some ridiculous thing like that. So we left off on chapter 10. Uh, that's where we are now, page 112. So why don't we just get into it? The name of the chapter is You Will Come to Life. Focus is the vision of the reviving of the dry bones and its larger fulfillment. So this is, I guess, in reference to Ezekiel 37.5. The paragraph one says, How the mood among the Jews in Babylon has changed. For some five years, Ezekiel hammered at their armor of false hopes, but his efforts barely made a dent. No matter what signs he acted out, what illustrations he spoke, what messages he proclaimed, the exiles refused to believe that Jehovah would allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. Even when they learned that the city had come under siege by the Babylonian army, they were still confident that its inhabitants would be safe. All right, so I guess in paragraph one, they're kind of just building up and giving us some backstory or some information on the, the chapters. Not too much to dissect here. Okay, here's paragraph two. But now, two years after the start of the siege, a refugee from Jerusalem has just arrived in Babylon, bringing, uh, bringing the report. The city has been struck down. That news devastates the exiles. They struggle to grasp it, its full significance. The beloved city, the holy temple, the cherished land, all gone. Their long-held hope gives way to despair. Okay. So here they're talking about uh, the fall of Jerusalem, which is kind of a big deal with Jehovah's Witnesses, as many know. That's kind of the, the whole basis for their 1914 thing. They believe that Jesus came back in 1914, and it's all based around this one event where Jerusalem fell. And they get the date wrong. As I've talked about many times throughout these series, they get the date wrong. It, it was not... It, it, Jerusalem did not fall when they said it fell. It fell like 20, 30 years later. Okay, let's look at paragraph number three. However, at this moment of desperation, Ezekiel receives a powerful vision of hope. What message does the vision contain for the shattered exiles? How does this vision relate to God's people today, and how can we personally benefit from it? To find out, let us examine what Jehovah reveals to Ezekiel. Okay, so that was paragraph, those are the first three paragraphs. Now we're in the new subheading, which is called, I think it's called prophes, prophesy over these bones and prophesy to the wind. Yeah, interesting. Okay, it says, read Ezekiel 37, 1 to 10. Let's read it. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. 
So I prophesied as I was commanded, and I was prophesying. There was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Okay, interesting. So they are basically talking about, uh, I, I guess this part's called the Valley of the dry, of Dry Bones. They're talking in these verses about um, somebody, I, the Son of Man, I think that's supposed to be the Messiah, breathing life into bones. Uh, and they form skin and things. Kind of strange. Anyway. Okay, so this subheading is called Prophesy Over These Bones, quote-unquote, and Prophesy to the Wind, quote-unquote. So it says, uh, read Ezekiel 37, 1-10, what we just read. In a vision, Ezekiel is set down in a valley plain that is covered with bones, as if to make sure that Ezekiel felt the full impact of the vision. Jehovah ordered the prophet to pass all around, quote-unquote, those widely scattered bones. As Ezekiel walked on the valley plain, two things about the bones especially stood out to him, their number and their condition. There were very many, he observed, and they were very dry weird okay that was paragraph four here's number five then jehovah gave ezekiel two commands that would set in motion a progressive restoration the first command was prophesy over these bones telling them to come to life ezekiel 37 4 to 6 and soon ezekiel prophesied there was a noise a rattling sound and the bones began to come to come together after which sinews and flesh came on the bones and skin covered over them. Sinews. I guess that's tendons. Um, hmm. The second command was prophesy to the wind, telling it to blow upon the bodies. When Ezekiel prophesied, breath came into them and they began to live and to stand on their feet. An extremely, extremely large army. Now, if you guys feel a little bit lost at what we're reading, don't worry, I do too. Uh... <laughs> I don't know, like, what this really has to do with anything. They're just kind of, like, this whole book, they're just stepping through, like, every single uh, verse in this book. They're stepping through every verse and giving their opinion on what it means. I, I think I mentioned this before. I can imagine the governing body members reading through this chapter. I'm sorry, reading through this book and taking notes on every single verse they read and coming up with explanations for what it means. Um, and then coming together in a room and discussing. And then having the book written. I, I imagine that's probably what happened. So they're taking it step by step. If it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you, don't worry. I don't think it makes much sense to anybody. Um, but hopefully it'll come together. We'll see. Anyway. Okay, so that was... Paragraph number five, uh, something else I wanted to make note of. In paragraph five, it says sinews and flesh, where in the, the reading that I did, it said tendons and flesh. Um, I've mentioned this too previously, but I'm not using the New World Translation. I'm not using the Jehovah's Witness version of the Bible. 
Uh, they are using that version in, in the book, obviously. But I feel like I can't really trust their translation because we don't know who the translators are, and there are just a lot of issues with it, a lot of questionable stuff with their translation. Um, and, and no translation is good to begin with. So I just use the NIV. It's, it's not bad. It's not a bad translation. Not a great one, not a bad one either. Anyway, that's why it came out sounding a little bit different when I read it in the uh, paragraph. Okay, so that was paragraph number five. The next subheading is, Our bones are dry and our hope has perished. Quote, unquote. I guess that's from the, uh, from the verses. All right, so here's paragraph six. Jehovah next revealed to Ezekiel how the vision was to be understood, saying, These bones are the whole house of Israel. Indeed, after the exiles had learned of Jerusalem's destruction, they felt that they, I'm sorry, they felt that they were as good as dead. Therefore, they lamented, Our bones are dry and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. That's Ezekiel 37.11, apparently, and then Jeremiah 34.20, according to this. Then in response to their lament, Jehovah revealed that this gloomy vision of bones actually contained a bright message of hope for Israel. Okay, um, the next paragraph is number seven, and it says, read Ezekiel 37, 12 to 14. That's not terribly long. It's only a couple of verses, so let's give it a read, see what it has to say here. Um, Therefore prophesy and say to them... So. For reference, this is like this takes place immediately after the last verses we read about bones mending flesh and so on and so forth. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Oh my God, how many times is he going to call himself the Lord? At least it's not saying Jehovah every time it says the Lord, because that's even cringier. Don't even get me started on that. Anyways, uh, so that was Ezekiel 37, 12 to 14. Let's take a look at paragraph 7 now. Through this vision, Jehovah assured the exiles that he would bring them to life, lead them back to their land, and let them settle there. Moreover, Jehovah addressed them again as my people. How uplifting those words must have been for the uh, despondent exiles. Why could they be certain that this promise of restoration would come true? Because Jehovah himself stood behind it. He declared, I myself, Jehovah, have spoken, and I have done it. I just want to make a quick note here of something. Um... They talk about, in this, in this paragraph, they talk about how they can be so sure that it's going to happen, so certain that this prom- promise of restoration would come true because God himself stood behind it. I love it how people commonly say God is, n- like, never changing. Uh, what, I feel like there's a word for it. What's the word? Anyway, God never changes. That's hilarious to me, because he changes all the time in the Bible. I mean, I can think of a billion examples. We don't need the New Testament law. I'm sorry, we don't need the Old Testament laws anymore, for one thing. That's just a prime example. I mean, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, 
two completely different gods. One of them is happy-go-lucky and nice and cheery and loving, and the other is like ordering genocide on groups of people and and performing miracles nonstop, like forcing the sun to stand still and all kinds of stuff. It's just bizarre. Ordering babies killed, it's nuts. They're just two different beings. They're just written from two different perspectives completely. So you can't tell me that God is never changing. He is, obviously. It's a joke. It's like calling the Bible inerrant. It is not inerrant. It's full of errors. Full of them. In fact, let me just pull this up real quick. Um, for those of you who haven't been to this website, it's bibviz.com, B-I-B-V-I-Z.com. And it's basically a graphical representation of the, of the skeptic's annotated Bible. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's pretty much like if you just look here on on the screen, you'll see like you can click any of these red lines here and it'll give you examples of places where the Bible contradicts itself. So these verses address whether or not God has a body. Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Um, and then Exodus 34, 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's all saying that God has a physical body. But then if you go down a little more, Luke and John, the New Testament, God didn't have a physical body. God is a spiritual being that has no body. God is a spirit, and they, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So anyways, it's a really cool website. You guys should check it out if you haven't. It, it, it really breaks the Bible down in, in a lot of detailed ways. Anyway, back to what we were talking about. Yeah, so the claim that God doesn't change is just outrageous. It's as outrageous as claiming the Bible is inerrant. It's, it's just not. It's full of errors. Okay, let's take a look at uh, paragraph 8. It says, How had the ancient nation of Israel experienced the fulfillment of the gloomy part of this prophetic vision? The symbolic demise of Israel had already begun in 740 BCE with the fall and exile of the ten-tribe kingdom. Some 130 years later, when the people of Judah were also deported, the whole house of Israel was in captivity. Symbolically speaking, the whole group of exiles were then as dead as the bones seen in Ezekiel's vision. Also recall that Ezekiel saw not just bones, but very dry bones, which indicated that their death-like condition continued for a long time. And indeed, for Israel and Judah combined, it lasted for over 200 years, from 740 to 537 BCE. How did they come to the conclusion... That's the end of the paragraph. How did they come to the conclusion that very dry bones versus just bones indicates that their death-like condition continued for a long time. How did they come to that conclusion? Uh, that's, that's extremely uh, questionable. I swear, I, I, I can only imagine the governing bodies sitting around just taking notes on things and making things up. That's what I imagine happened when they wrote this book, this Pure Worship of Jehovah book. Okay, that was uh, paragraph number eight. Let's look at number nine. 
Restoration prophecies concerning Israel, such as the ones spoken by Ezekiel, have a larger fulfillment. Just as the ancient nation of natural Israel was killed and remained symbolically dead for a, consider, I'm sorry, for a considerable time, so the Israel of God, the anointed Christian congregation, was killed symbolically and experienced death-like captivity for a long time. In fact, the captivity of the anointed congregation as a whole continued for so long that their spiritual condition could well be compared to that of bones that were, that were very dry. Again, they're harping on this, were very dry thing. As explained in the preceding chapter, the captivity of the anointed Christian congregation began in the 2nd century CE and lasted for many centuries, just as Jesus had indicated in his kingdom illustration of the wheat and the weeds. Interesting. Um, yeah, I remember that uh, that illustration of Jesus. He was talking about how we should just let. There was there was like a parable or like a story, a lesson or whatever he told, where some people were saying that there were some weeds in the field with the food, and he asked, they asked, "What what do we do about the weeds?" And he said. Let them grow, we'll pick the food, and then we'll pull the weeds before the next harvest. And they named it like such a like profound, wise thing. What are you talking about? There's nothing wise about that. That's the worst idea. The food is going to come out worse because the weeds are stealing the nutrients. Anyway, uh, it just kills me. Just, just because Jesus said it does not mean that it was wise at all. That was not wise. That was stupid. That was a stupid decision. Anyway, all right, so that was paragraph nine. We'll just end it here, and I will continue on later. Uh, next week, we'll finish this chapter up. Appreciate you guys coming on and giving us a listen. It's been an interesting time, and I will talk to you next week.